What if someone told you that you could learn the secret to happiness or success? Maybe you have an interest in mental health or the unknown, or even the desire to communicate with the dead. These are the real stories and encounters from the real people on Behind the Story with Chuck Talk. And here's your host, Chuck Talk. Hey, I've got a question for all of you out there. Are you getting older? Well, I know that's a silly question because we all are getting older. But what if there were some tips or secrets on living healthier, possibly living longer? My guest today, Ankur Patel, Dr. Ankur Patel, is an author of Age is Just a Number, a geriatrician's secret for getting the most out of life. That is what I want to know, is the secret to getting the most out of life. So if you want to follow me on this journey to finding out what it is that we can do to have a better life, sit back and have a listen. So let's get started now. I'm going to be the student on this one because, you know, your book, Age is Just a Number, Geriatric Secrets for Getting the Most Out of Life. So I'm of that age. And I do not sleep. So the, my guest today, Ankur Patel, is going to tell us about his book, about the secrets behind, do I dare say anti-aging or just really to how to prolong and have a better life? Is that a better way to say? I, I always say it's more quality of aging over, versus quantity of aging. Okay. If you Google anything about aging or anti-aging there's a lot out there and they talk really about the superficial the face and things <laughs> like that rather than what's inside and i think you really go on to the inside you know how yes. to be healthy and live healthy for a better life yes so, so like i was saying i'm going to be your student and okay. i'm going to listen and i'm going to let you take it away oh but first before we do that can you give us a little background about you and how you became a chief medical officer, how you became an author, you know, just a little background history? Long story, but I'll make it, try to make it short. So no, I, I, you know, I call myself CIA, not because I'm smart enough to be in an intelligent agency, but I was born in Canada, I grew up in India, and now I'm in America. That makes me Canadian, Indian, American, CIA. No, I started my journey, actually. I, I call myself accidental doctor. I, I was in my pharmacy school in India, and I graduated with my bachelor's in pharmacist, and my plan was like to come to U.S. and just practice as a pharmacy pharmacist. And then 2003, I graduated my undergrad in India in April. And 2003, January, they changed the rule in America that all foreign pharmacists has to go through a PharmD program, and I have to go to four more years of school. And I'm like, huh, four more years of school, getting myself into like quarter million dollars in debt, and why not apply to medical school? That's how I ended up. And when I applied to medical school, my dean is like, why, you know, what's your passion about and why you want to be a doctor? And I'm like, honestly, like pharmacy school rejected me. Some of them, some of them are saying four years and I have to take all these loans. Mine will not become a doctor. 
that's how I ended. And you know what? That time I was sad and upset. But, you know, when we talk about things happened for a good reason, it did. After that, I just started moving forward, did my residency with University of Alabama in family practice, was very passionate about senior care and geriatrics because my grandmother was my mentor and a role model in my life. And that's the reason I'm like, you know, geriatric was something that I fall in love with. I loved when patients were on 22 medications and and then I decreased to six and eight and they have a whole new life. Somebody who was falling multiple times to now like literally engaging and doing things without any fear gave me. So did geriatrics and then the journey started and, you know, one after another, uh, I think some hard work and some luck and, and got here to, to becoming a chief medical officer 10 years later after my residency and fellowship. And I think I always wanted to write a book. People, you know, a lot of caregivers used to more tell me because I take care of geriatric patients. And a lot of caregivers mentioned to me, Dr. P, the way you explain everything is so, so simple and easy. And I feel good and I understand everything. And I was repeating the same story 20 times a day. <laughs> And multiply that by 10 years. And I'm like, I need to put this down in writing. And that's how the journey of, of author being an author started. And then wrote a book. And age is just a number. And by grace of God, the book is doing well. Yes, I've seen that you've gotten really great reviews, too, on your book. And that one of the things that you just mentioned where you, Dr. P puts it very simple. In layman's terms, there, there have been reviews saying just that, that, you make it very understandable. Yes. Yes, because that's important. If you think about it, most of the time you ask anybody who who went through a doctor and then came back and what did the doctor say? The first reaction is like I didn't even know half of the thing what he or she said because they were using this big medical words. Right? And I always tell all my residents and fellows or medical students that I mentor or who rotate with me I'm like, it's not to put anybody's education down or up, but explain as if you are explaining to like a middle school children in that language, right? In a way, because break medicine down to the simplest, because first of all, they are very stressed when they are to the doctor. They're scared, oh, what my results will be? Will it be something positive or negative? So they're stressed. So a lot of time what I say that patient, what they do is they hear, but they don't listen. So we have to tame it down so they can understand and they can get engaged because if they engage more, they understand the health condition more and you get better outcome because they understand what's going on. Yeah. I, well, yes, I agree. Absolutely. And that 100 percent. And I tell my mother that, too. And I tell her, <laughs> ask questions. Don't be afraid yes. to ask the doctor a question. Yes. And always a lot of time people think sometimes a lot of my patient over the time when I build up the relationship, they're like, oh, we get intimidated to ask those questions. And honestly, doctors want you to ask those questions. We a lot of time they're like, oh, I am that daughter or son who asks a lot of questions. And that is OK to ask. And there's no question such as stupid questions. So please ask us questions because actually, if you ask questions, we also get more engaged in your in the care. And that's how like, you know, it's a chemistry between doctor and patient. As that builds up, the, the outcome gets better. Yes. Yeah. And right. It's there is no dumb question. It's kind of dumb if you don't ask, because if you yes. don't understand, <laughs> you're not going to know what to do. What well, doctor said, take two of these. Why? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> exactly. So, wow. 
that's quite a journey. I mean, like you said, an accidental doctor, and that truly is. It wasn't your direct <laughs> line, but now you are an author as well. And I see your book is right over your right shoulder there. So there it is. <laughs> yes. No, it's a it's something that I always wanted to to do. In my mind, never thought like always means if you were asked me five years ago, I didn't think about it. But then I'm like, I need to write this book. And especially when I see I have seen healthcare in multiple countries as a, you know, a CIA, I've seen seen different different health systems, different accountability. And I'm like my grandma, you know, who died at the age of 93, and she has zero chronic conditions. She was not on any medications. And she was born, raised in India and lived her whole life in India. And India does not have the health system or access to health, even fraction of what we have in America. So what did she do different that she made it this far without? And in, in America, like, you know, six in 10 adults have one, at least one chronic conditions like diabetes and hypertension and four in 10 has two or more chronic conditions. So why we are struggling when we have all the infrastructure, we have access to health, but she made that life. And I started like comparing her life and more like what she was doing. And, and she just left a simple, happy life. And what she was doing, she had a good routine. She wakes up in the morning, will make her own breakfast. Again, fresh breakfast she'll make. She's, she was spiritual, so she'll go to the temple in the morning. Very positive mindset which I think that it was part of her spirituality built it into, into that positive mindset. Come home and read a lot, engaging herself. Then she used to socialize with her friends, maybe grab lunch with them, socialize with them, talk to them. And I'll come back on those topics too about each and every things about the sleep and socialization and why that routine was important. And then she will, she will make sure she has some kind of physical activity and maybe if she's walking 30 minutes a day. And, and, and then that whole spectrum of life, when I see hydrating yourself, right? How many times you forget, like, you know, you start your day and it's 12 p.m. and then you realize, did I drink water? No, I just had a cup of coffee in the morning and that's it, right? Yeah, yeah, so, thank you. <laughs> but that was another thing. And then I started kind of following the same thing if you heard about those blue zone areas, right? Either in Japan or Italy or, or all this Mediterranean place. But they all have something in common. They're more happy and socializing. And, and that becomes very important part of the life. And then coming to geriatrics then, and I started looking my healthy patient and my non-healthy patients. And even the title of the book, Age is Just a Number, I came up with that because I mean it. I have seen patients in their 60s who act and feel like they're in their 80s. And then I have also seen patients in their 80s who act and feel like they're in their 60s. So, so what is that, right? So that is more like, and do I treat all my 70-year-old patients the same? Answer is no. That's where what I call is I look at the biological age and not the chronological age. So when you talk about, you know, anti-aging or aging successfully, it's pretty much nobody gets young. Like every every year your birthday comes and you, you get a year older, but that's your chronological age. And always I say that is something that's an event that happens that's not in your hand. Don't worry about it. Yeah. But... How you react to that is very important, which helps with your biological age, which is what is biological age? More like, you know, the other factors, your diet, 
you're 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 exercising your lifestyle smoking drinking right so all those lifestyle habits combination with your chronological age makes your biological age so pretty much that's how it comes to hey somebody in their 60s looks like 80s and somebody in their 80s looks like 60 that's pretty much with all this thing you can turn your biological clock back if you want to and that's in our hand okay uh-huh. well i'm glad you're talking about this stress i always say stress is a silent Absolutely. killer and that can probably yes. age you tremendously lack of sleep can and it definitely sounds like what you're saying is and it, your environment yes it, plays a big part in this because of your happiness. If you're not happy, you're going to be depressed. And if you're depressed, you're going to start feeling or becoming sick, which yes. affects your health. So Absolutely. Uh, that's why I said in the beginning, I am I should shut up, but I have questions because <laughs> you are yes. Dr. P and I am a patient <laughs> today. And I am one of those, probably many people out there who just do not sleep enough, do not eat properly. So... Thank you for starting to mention all that stuff. So, yeah. So let's say we we can start with sleep, right? And and this is a common time. And this is like you know, and a lot of things is like when I say my patient, yes, because I'm a geriatrician, and and most of my patient falls sixty plus. But the same principle applies to any age of life, and like sleep, right? Right? Like people, and that's one of the myth that people think as you age, you don't need more. You don't, you know, you don't need that many hours of sleep. And that's a myth. As you age, we still need seven to nine hours of sleep a day, right? So a lot of time my patients will come and ask me, oh, Dr. P, give me a sleeping pill because I don't sleep. Okay, so let's start with, you know, Mr. W, why you are not sleeping? Oh, I go to bed at 11. I wake up at like four and then I can't go back to sleep. Okay. Tell me about your sleep habit. And then they'll be like, well, I eat breakfast. And then around 10 to 11, I take a nap. Then in the evening, 4 to 5, I take a nap. I'm like, so you are sleeping that 7 to 9 hours. It's just your sleep hygiene is not good, possibly. Where rather than sleep, you know, you sleep in in, in those broken hours versus try to sleep, you know, say, um, you know, seven, seven hours at, at a time. And, and, and why sleep is so important? Because they have shown studies that, that lack of sleep causes more chronic diseases like diabetes, hypertension, stress, of course, also leads to depression, obesity. So sleep-wise, I always say is the sleep hygiene is very important that, you know, sometimes getting into that routine about f- going to bed at the same time, regardless the day of the week, try to stay away from, from the screens because that's what wakes us up or keeps us up. Is it fair to say that, right? Like most of us, like average people spend five and a half hours on their phone. And, yes. <laughs> and that, that comes from mostly the, most of the time when you look at it is when people are in bed, let's say, 10 p.m. Next thing you know, it's 12 a.m. and you're still on your phone. So, so that kind of habit that I say bedroom needs to be more dark, no music, unless you know you can fall asleep with music, it's good. But just just quiet, and even if you don't sleep, try to put yourself to bed the first week or so. 
uh, it will be hard that you might be still up for hour and a half, two hours, because that's your habits of past do not just change right away. It's a sleep cycle that you need to get in. And as you more try to put yourself to bed, and that's how your cycle will, will get better and and you can sleep more longer with my patient I always say try to avoid sometimes daytime nap because that will interrupt with their nighttime and and most of the time the caregivers always wants their their loved one to more sleep at night so they can also get a break okay. so in that way like you know sleep sleep is one of the very important part that and I always say sleep is not a luxury it's a necessity Yes. I do want to ask a quick question about the sleep and habits and patterns and things like that. I am a poor sleeper. I, everybody that knows me says, how do you function because you don't sleep? As an example, <laughs> I went to bed at 4.30 this morning. I was up at 7. Yesterday, 4 o'clock, up at 7.30. So that's pretty much the same, and I've been doing that for, honestly, 40 Wow. Uh, it would be anywhere from – a. I probably sleep on the average of four and a half hours a day for the past 40 years, and I do know that it's affecting me. But people would say, oh, you have insomnia. But I've noticed that over the years it's changed. And I, because in the past, me, insomnia, I would say, I can't turn my brain off and this and that. Now I say it's a habit. It's not that I have insomnia. Mm -hmm. It's a habit that I have formed, and it's hard for me to break. So do you find that a lot of people, because you mentioned the word habit, that yeah. – it's a habit and you have to break your habit and then yeah. you'll fix that yeah. so yeah so so any habit is 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 an habit right so but that that's where the biggest difference comes in it's not unusual that a lot of people actually function to their a plus level with 5 hours of sleep and that's how their body is used to, and that's how it functions, and that's how they're able to get. So so it's nothing wrong with, like, in your case. What happens over the time is you can do certain things in your more younger age, and more where this happens is more now people are more retiring, and they're not working as much, and now they have a lot of time in the middle that they did not have before, right? In that, their rhythms and cycle changes. A lot of time, if, if somebody can calm their brain and, and, and work up to the expectation and, and the stress, because a lot of time what happens is, is what you mentioned is stress, right? Stress is a silent killer where people are stressing out and that's the reason they are not sleeping. And that's how the, so if somebody habit is just like that is different, where just somebody is not able to sleep because of the secondary factor that's where it, it, it comes with a different story. Oh, doc, I cannot sleep because of the stress level I have. Okay, because that's where the, the whole whole domino effect happens. From stress, stress can lead into other chronic conditions like high blood pressure, diabetes, depression. That more worries me than somebody's like, I can function fine, I'm sleeping five hours, and I'm good. Well, I know it's showing on my face the age. With the lack of sleep. Just a number. Yeah, that's right. Age is just a number. And speaking of that, your book is available everywhere, right? So it's available on Amazon, mostly online platforms than in-store. So it's it's available on Burns & Nobles online. It's available Amazon online. But most of the common and easier way with shipping and everything is Amazon that most of my readers get it from. So it's on Amazon. They can just search for age is just a number. 
it should come up or age is just a number, Dr. Patel, P-A-T-E-L, and it will show up with that beautiful bench to sit and reflect. That's right. And I'll make sure that I put it in the description because this is something that's really important. And I think the age, the population or the aging population is getting greater in America. So yes. we don't want to, people who have children don't want to burden their children. We don't want to burden the financial system of America because we know it's crashing right now <laughs> and there may not be anybody to take care of you. So preventative medicine is the best thing yes. to do. Yes. And, and it's probably never too late to start, but it is best to start early. I 100% agree. It's never late to start. A lot of time, my patients, when the mid-70s, would be like, Doc, it's too late. It's never too late. You can start start on acting on it from the day you decide. But Chuck, you mentioned a very good point about how we are aging is, is what I call the silver tsunami, right? 10,000 older adults turn 65 every day in our country. And that's where the whole dynamic of, of aging is changing. And by something like, you know, right now it's around one in six, one in seven are, are 65 and above. And that will change in future to like one in five, 20% of our population will be 65 and older. And that's where it comes in that, you know, health system, insurance companies, they have their role to play and they will play according to how, how the market is and demand is. But a lot of people complain about all those things and they have their thing to do. I work with a lot of people. They have a good heart to change the system. But these are the simple things that you can do that you don't even have to wait for anybody else to change and you can do to make your health better. And I think that's where it comes in. And and a lot of the time I, when I give talks, it's like, you know, are we ready for it? Are we prepared for the silver tsunami? And and the answer is no, we are not. Because it, it's a two-way street that as a patient, we need to be ready. And as a health system and Medicare and all those other federal structure system and state structures needs to be ready too for this. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I may be putting you on the spot right now by asking this. Do you find that here in America versus abroad, any place, that we as Americans tend to point the finger at somebody else for everything? And that includes our health. And what I mean by that is I'm dependent on my doctor. I'm dependent on my, my Medicare. I'm dependent on this to make me healthy rather than, like you said, put it on ourselves to take that step to become healthy. Do what we can because we we can start and we can make the change by changing habits or eating properly or sleeping. So I guess yeah. that question is, do you find that here in the States that we, we, we tend to rely on somebody else to, to make us b better? I think where it comes that particular thing, I feel like it's, it's not, it's people in any countries in the world is more dependent. It's very easy to point finger at the government. Like so, or others right like so for example here it's like oh this medicare doesn't work and all these 10 things does not work but hey what you have done for yourself right and, and and grass is not greener on the other side of the world either i say that grass is greener where you water right and what is the biggest problem that i see either either especially in western countries more than than the asian countries is is the accountability that somehow in our culture here in U.S. is 
the accountability always falls a lot of times on the health system that, oh, you are discharging a patient. Well, if they come back in 30 days, it's your fault. And, and part of the things that pressures the health system and doctors, including myself, to do a good job that once patient goes home, they go home. But the other side of the accountability is, is missing. And the biggest difference where I saw was, you know, when we are talking about this whole opioid crisis, right, in, in U.S. And, and my cousin is a surgeon in India. And when he does surgery, let's say a gallbladder surgery, right, for example, and and you know, when the patients say, oh, doc, it hurts after surgery, and my cousin's response will be like, okay, I, I cut open your belly and took your gallbladder out, and it will hurt, but but I will try my best to control your pain. Whereas here in U.S., it just expected that I should have a zero pain after surgery, and, and technically, there's no such thing as zero pain in surgery, right? So now I have this expectation from that after surgery, patients should not have any pain. And that's where this whole barrier of pain starts and you give a higher, stronger pain meds. And then from that, the ball rolls to longer addiction sometimes. And, and then the whole, whole opioid academic. And again, it's not just one thing. This is just a little example I'm giving about the, the accountability part. There are a lot of different factors in this whole opioid epidemic. But that's how the accountability uh, matters. And I'll be very transparent that a lot of time here, we can't be uh, called spade a spade somehow. Like I have to think twice because I'm like, oh, you know, is it is it something that I'm saying something inappropriate? Will, will I get a lawsuit from this? Like, and one best example, I would say that I was in the hospital rounding and the patient was in for some other reasons. And she was like, oh, doc, you know, my back has been hurting. And my knee has been hurting a lot. And and what should I do for that? And mostly I knew the patient. I'm like, it's more from the arthritis. And that arthritis patient is having because she has been overweight her whole life. So I said, Miss so-and-so, you know, the best treatment for this is you need to lose weight. And guess what happens one hour later? I get a phone call from a hospital administrator that you called a patient. And I'm like, I did not call anybody fat, but she asked me for what should we do for this knee pain and back pain. It comes from arthritis. It's from osteoarthritis, which is wear and tear of your bones. And it's because of her overweight. So I just told her you need to lose weight. But how it gets translated, it's a lot of time here that we have to be very selective in using the words. And sometimes you have to call spade a spade. And and you need to lose weight. I'm sorry. That's that's the reason all this problem is. And it's it's a balance, right? I try to, and it's not like I'm not being empathetic. I try to be, but sometimes it's taken in the wrong way. And then the whole thing is like, okay, so will I hesitate next time now to tell somebody something like that? Yes. So am I be, then I'm thinking like, but I'm, I'm his or her doctor and I need to be honest and, and, and just say what it is. Yep. It's interesting that you mentioned that because just yesterday I had a conversation with a friend with this exact topic and this was just out of the blue because he is more of a fitness and in shape and one of his friends female said how do I look and he was just telling me this and he said well I told her hey, you could probably work out and she, she, he said she said so you're saying I'm fat and he said, I didn't say that word. You asked me. And the conversation ended up being, well, are you going to be a real friend and say exactly? I mean, the 
the truth or you can say, oh, you look fantastic. And they're going to be overweight or obese and it's not healthy. And he's a health person and he just says, yeah, you could use some working out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. No, I always say that sometimes you know, I know these are the things that could be misinterpreted the wrong way. But when I look at it, it's still as my patient's doctor and the family members, I have to be honest and, and say what it is. They may not like me, the, but the other time I always say, you know, other time where I always say where more family member gets upset with, with me is, is always talking about end of life conversations, right? Like, you know, yeah. the loved one. I know it's a difficult conversation. It's the big elephant in the room that nobody wants to discuss. And a lot of time, I, you know, and with my patients, I tell them always that, you know, end of life decision should not be made at end of life. Because, you know, at end of life, we are not thinking from mind, we are thinking from heart. So if you cannot make decisions for yourself, your loved one is making for you, your caregiver, primary caregiver, it could be daughter or son, and they feel guilty making decisions for you. So a lot of time you need to tell your daughter, son, or other family member what they want. So that kind of scenario makes it easy because then everybody knows this is what dad or mom wanted. The, the problem where family gets more upset is now I'm breaking the news to them that this is mom or, you know, father or mother has six months left and this and that. We need to start thinking about from here how to process. There's not much things we can do at this time. So how we want to go towards. And that time they will be angry because I'm the first time breaking that news. But once they digest it, they go to the whole phase of, you know, denial, anger, bargain. And then one week later, the same family gives me hugs. And even after the patient passed away, year later, year, year later I, I get a, a, a card uh, from them. But so what I have learned over the time that one or two cases that happen should not make me change my practice of medicine sometimes they will be upset but this is like a family it's a relationship that sometimes they'll be upset but then they also turn around yeah yeah i, I just want to make sure that we don't forget that you have a book and so, your book outlines a lot of this information that we're talking about so it, i'm going to encourage people to to go to amazon and and really to find the book Please. Yeah, please. Because this is something that, you know, that's one chapter is more about end of life. Other chapters are more about focusing on what you can do. And when I was talking to Chuck about my grandmother's story and, and socialization and why it's so important, I tell my patient that if you have an option to come and see me, whereas go out and grab lunch with your friends. I tell them to go out and grab lunch with their friends. And the reason is there are studies that shows that somebody who socializes versus do not socialize, somebody who do not socialize as much has a 50% increased risk of 30% risk of stroke and 28% increased risk of having a heart attack. Wow. Does that, do you know, does that matter how large your group of friends is or is it really just having that one a, a companion somebody else uh, yes yes any kind of socialization is just a general socialize go out talk to somebody interact you know so i think that part of socialization is very important and that's what i always used to tell patients or i compare with my grandmother or you compare all the blue zones that happen and and that's very important and you know what i'm like if you're medically stable go finish your lunch and then we can catch up with me some other day because your friend may not be available, but I will make myself available for you. So, so that, 
that's where it goes. And then also when you talk about this whole socialization and why, because even if you Google something called senior loneliness is one of the biggest issues in our country. And I want to address, the, my recent article was out at, in Forbes Health about that. So if you Google, you know, senior loneliness, Forbes Health, it will pop up. And it's about like how it's detrimental to health this whole whole senior loneliness increases your risk of dementia and anxiety on top of that. So that, and then when I was talking about physical activity, right? The importance of physical activity, and I'm not saying physical activity means climb a mountain, right? I'm just literally saying any kind of physical activity, 30 minutes a day, five times a week. So I'm only asking for 150 minutes in a, in a week. That is only 1.5% of your time. And why I am, I'm encouraging that, because again, the studies have shown that doing 30 minutes a day, five times a week physical activity reduces all cause of mortality by 33%. Wow. Okay. And when you put it into the percentage, because I think a lot of people in America listen to and look at percentage, you say 1.5% of your time, you're going, wait a second, that's nothing. But as opposed to saying, well, you need, you should do 30 minutes a day, they're going, ooh, I don't know if I could carve out 30 minutes. That's so true. Busy. Absolutely. Wow. Right. And, and the mortality. And when we talk about 33%, we are talking one third of your risk of mortality decreases just by physical activity. And I say physical activity could be yoga, could be walking, could be playing tennis, gardening, whatever you like to do. Just do go walk in a mall during cold months, right? So whatever it is, just just do some kind of physical activity. And that's again, it's not like only for my senior patient. This this is what you can do in your 30s, 40s, and 50s. So you can have your better 70s, 80s, and 90s with that. And these these are the things that it's never too late because once you even start doing this in your 30s, 40s, and 50s, this is where your bone health comes in. Your bones will stay stronger versus, you know, as you age, you get softening of bone or in medical terms, they call osteoporosis, right? So that's what comes. Muscles is something you use it or lose it. Mm-hmm. Right. So muscles is something keep using it. So because as you age, your muscles kind of gets a little wasted. If you are not, you'll start losing it if you don't use it. And then it's very hard to get that muscles back compared to you can more easily get those muscles back in your 30s, 40s and 50s. Yeah. Like you said, use it or lose it. And you lose a lot of muscle mass the older you get. And you hear a lot about your core. And I think it's really important to, like you said, being fit because your gut, your core area plays a big part, especially for your back. It helps support your back too. So if you lose that, next thing you know, oh, my back, I've got really bad back. Oh, yeah. Take a look at the front. <laughs> That's where it starts, right? That's what, like, when I was going to the grandma's routine, when we talk about the physical activity, socialization, these are the things that I have all mentioned in the book. It, every chapter is one, two, maybe three, four pages only. But And I always say that, you know, a lot of people ask me who this book is for. This book is for Anybody who wants to more age successfully, so I say rule of thumb, 55 and above, definitely, or an and if they're a caregiver, because a lot of times now when we are thinking is I call my younger geriatric patient is a caregiver of an older geriatric patient. That means a son or a daughter in their 60s is caring for a mother or father in their 90s who are in the 90s. So so that's where it is. And so each chapter, what I have also done is given caregiver tips. 
in each chapter where caregiver exactly know like in four sentence what they need to understand about falls sometimes you know so those are the things that I have more set it up. I mentioned about hydration. And when we are talking about drinking water, believe it or not, there was a study done at UCLA, which showed 40% of the seniors are chronically under And I'm not surprised because what happens, we drink so much coffee, we drink other fancy drinks, right? Like that, that we think is replacing the water, but certain things like coffee as caffeine, theophylline, some of those things will make you urinate more and you're kind of dehydrating too there. Versus I call water, like, you know, what was it? I call water the hero because the calorie intake is zero. I like that. Yeah. Right? So plain water is sometimes the best. The golden rule of thumb is is eight cups a day, six to eight cups a day of eight ounces. That's like around 64 ounces a day. And that's where the hydration matters when it comes in. Because a lot of time when I talk to my patients, it's all about how are you? Oh, I don't feel good. Okay. Why? Oh, well, when I get up, I feel dizzy. Okay. So that means you are on all this blood pressure medication. On top of that, you are dehydrated now. So we are, this is a prescription for fall. Yeah. I know hydration is important. Sleep is important. And I do neither one of which. But also with hydration, I hear, you know, a lot of people might say, oh, I've got these bad cramps. I get cramps in my calves. Hydration. You should be hydrated. Your muscles are going to cramp if you're not hydrated. Especially summertime. Yeah. And the other thing I want to address is I love where you say you've got your junior geriatric and your senior geriatric. (laughs) It's so when we were children and teenagers, our biological age always between our parents remained the same and or our chronological age remained the same. Biological is is a gap. But the older Mm -hmm. we get, that biological gap becomes smaller because now, like you said, I'm 60 and your mother, your parents could be 80 or 90. But that biological thing got smaller because I have seen parents who have been healthier than their children in their absolutely fifties, uh, and the parents are eighty years old. And you're going, well, your mom and dad still golf, but you're saying that you've got all these issues, and you're sitting around. Absolutely, my mind. and that that's exactly. I had a, a patient in my senior center that actually the mother and the son both were patients and the senior center and the mother was 90 year old more active and the son was in in, in early 60s and had like three to four chronic conditions so actually sometimes it was more easier to care for the mom than son so and and that's the reality and and my biggest concern with our health care right now is this as everybody is aging, do we have enough workforce to take care of them? You know, a lot of doctors or nurses, and they're like, oh, I don't want to go into the geriatric side. You know, I want to go on like surgical side or other specialty side and, and not go on the geriatric route. But regardless, wherever you are going, that will end up being your patient population. Yeah. I just want to ask you because. I love the title of your book, so if you wouldn't mind, for those who are actually watching, if you could bring your, your book up front and show us the, uh, the cover of your book there. Okay, so let's just get here. And this is the book, Age is Just a Number. And a lot of people ask me, like, you know, why it's an empty bench. And I always say that, you know, when I was voting, I asked 100 people about the cover, and most of the geriatric patient. There were three or four who said an empty bench looks depressing. 
But majority of the thing patients said that I love the bench because I can sit on the bench, reflect and watch that sunset or sunrise or whatever you want to keep. But they feel like I can reflect my entire life. And I, I'm, I, I just think about and visualize that I'm sitting on the bench and, and thinking about my reflecting on my life. So that that was pretty sweet to me. So that's the reason I stick with this cover. And and I, I'm, I'm very happy overall with how, how things are going with this. Yeah, I, I like the uh, the cover with the empty bench, too, because I could imagine putting myself there rather than seeing somebody else sitting there. So it's my story. It's my my health. So I can see it's myself your story. Yeah, there. yeah. This has been really fantastic. Can you give us maybe three tips on what we can do to change our pattern to help ourselves become healthier what are three simple steps that we could take yeah and one thing i think is number one is take 100 percent responsibility of ourselves. period you know i know that there will be if you are doing 10 things you know six things may not be in your hand don't worry about the six things that's not in your hand focus on that four things that's in your hand and take 100% responsibility for those four things that's in your hand. And that's where it goes to the second point that one of my mentor, Jack Canfield, told me is, is E plus R equals to O, right? So E is the event that will happen. Your birthday comes every, every year. You will get old by one year. But how you respond to that event is very important because that will depend your outcome. If you respond well to an event, the outcome will be good. If you respond bad to an event, the outcome will be bad. And I think that is very important to think about. We all have stress. We have different levels of stress. How you react to stress is very important. And that. And third thing I always say is have some kind of routine. All these things that I mentioned, either if it's sleep or socialization or exercise or hydration or diet or, or smoking habits, right? Like all these things are there. It sums up your life. All these habits of today will decide your tomorrow. So whatever you do, little bit, it's always good. Even if you can improve yourself 1% a day, that by the end of the year, you will be 365% better than you started the year. So that's, that's more my points about, you know, get into it and it's never too late. Very, very good. I like that. And I especially like the first tip. It's really become accountable for yourself. So, Dr. P. This has been fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> you. You started that. You started it. And remember, <laughs> I said that I'm going to be like the patient, and you are my doctor. So if others call you Dr. P, yeah, you're Dr. P. Dr. P. That's awesome. So, yeah. So once again, this is Dr. Ankur Patel, and his book he has authored is called Age is Just a Number. So, And so you can definitely go to Amazon, you know, look that up. Otherwise, I'll have it in our description, so you'll be able to click on the link and go right there. Awesome. So, was there anything else that you wanted to add, or I, I think something that we can easily add if for caregivers, if if you want to, I can yeah. do that for real quick for That's... caregiver. Okay, yeah. And so, Chuck, before kind of, I still have one more thing: is caregiver burnout is very important because I all 
tell all the patient is healthy caregiver is equals to healthy patients. And, and as much as me as a doctor, it's my job to take care of the patient, but it's equally important to take care of the caregivers because they are the one who gets burned out and they are the one who, who lives a very stressful life. And they juggle a lot because if you think about a caregiver, two thirds of the caregivers are, are women. And, and so think about a caregiver who is balancing the life about work, children's at home, which is mostly the sandwich generation that I say, children at home, their social life, their work life, taking care of the aging parents is multiple balls they're juggling at the same time. So if you are in a power, and especially if you're an employer or a corporate where who can help your employees who are a caregiver, please be flexible with the hours because they could be your best employee. They're just going through a patch of stress right now being a caregiver. So support them in any way you can. And then on the other side, if you know your friends or family who are caregivers, caregivers do not usually ask for help. And I always tell them that they should ask for help because we cannot do it by ourselves. Please help them. Sometimes just surprise them saying that, you know what? Why don't you go grocery shopping or go out and have a peaceful dinner with your husband and I'll look at mom for two hours or two and a half hours. Because believe it or not, even having one peaceful dinner without getting stressed feels like a vacation to a caregiver. So if you're an employer, please help your employee. If you're a friend or family who knows somebody is a care, caregiver, they normally don't ask for help, but they all need help. So, so please, please do that. Thanks for adding that because it is important, especially over the past you know, two, two and a half years, we've heard about a lot about the burnout from yes. our caregivers. That's whether you're in hospitals or senior homes and things like that. And that goes without saying, it's not just because during the, the past pandemic time or the present pandemic time, this goes for all times because oftentimes without their help, we're left to fend for ourselves. And we, going back to being dependent on others, we are dependent on our healthcare providers. So, Absolutely. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Chuck, for having me. This was a this was a pleasure and wonderful conversation.